couple of brief announcements before I pray and read the scripture this morning. There is a, a picnic after the service this morning. Please do uh, go into the fellowship hall, enjoy uh, coffee and fellowship together for about a half an hour until the food is ready to be uh, served for that purpose. And um, if you are visiting with us this morning, you are welcome to be part of that meal and to join us. I hope you will uh, do that so we have opportunity to greet you and to welcome you and to be hospitable to you. So come all, come one, come all to that. Uh, also, I wanted to mention again on June 25th, uh, Saturday morning between 10 and 11 a.m., I'll be leading a devotional time for men, donuts and devotions for dudes. And uh, there's a sign up outside for that. I hope that you will consider being part of that. And um, I did get a lot of critique about the, I was going to just get some Dunkin' Donuts, but then I, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about Dunkin' Donuts because it could be a corporate sponsor, who knows. Uh, <laughs> But I got some criticism, you know, that's not good enough. Uh, so we're, we're going to have special donuts that morning. I'm, uh, so come on for that. When we get the Ridge Donuts, Ridge Donuts, that'd be a good place. So uh, come be part of that time of uh, food, fellowship, and some uh, devotion and really good donuts. With that, uh, let us now turn our attention to the Lord, to his word, and particularly asking this morning for his blessing upon the hearing and preaching of the word. Would you join your hearts with mine? In a time of prayer. Well, Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. That's the entire chapter of the book here, or the, of the chapter 14. A little bit, uh, we've been away from this for a while. We recognize some of the liturgical Sundays of the church with Ascension and Pentecost. We're back into this Roman series, and as you remember, we're doing this backwards. So we started in Romans 16, and if you recall there, we saw Paul issuing this kind of great, overwhelming uh, series of greetings to various people in the church. And in that chapter, we saw the great diversity of this church along gender lines, along ethnicity, along socioeconomic status. And, and Paul is kind of recognizing, calling all of these people from diverse backgrounds to greet one another, to be greeted. He commends them. He, he praises them for their, their dedication to Jesus Christ in the ministry and to him personally. So it's diverse and dedicated group of people. And then in Romans 15, as we peeled that onion layer back to the next chapter, we saw Paul began to speak about a problem, that this diverse and dedicated group of people were also divided. And he calls them to sing with one voice, to sing with harmony. If you remember that, he starts making this argument for unity, in, even though they are experiencing division. And so now we're peeling one more layer back on that argument here in Romans 14. What Paul didn't tell us in Romans 15 was what was that division about? And what was Paul's plan for dealing with it? Well, here in Romans 14, both of those questions are answered for us. So now give your attention to the hearing of the Word of God. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning, purposefully, uh, Romans chapter 14. Hear now the Word of the Lord. 
except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what what, what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his sermon series on Romans, uh, Pastor Steve Mathewson shared the following a story, a true account of a church that had a division. And here's, here's how it went. A, a couple of uh, high schoolers uh, who were on a baseball team uh, came home one Saturday night late from a baseball you know, traveling league kind of tournament, and they got home late, and they were exhausted. And so you know, they, they didn't uh, have time to shower the next morning because they got up late. They put on their church clothes, but they went to church because their hair was all kind of messed up, you know, had head, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And so they went to church with their baseball caps on. And that morning, they, you know, they, the, one of the moms of 
one of those guys came up to the pastor and said, hey, you know, this is why this is going on. And the pastor said, yeah, don't, no problem. Don't worry about it. Nobody complained. The service went on. Everyone was happy. Everything was good. But then things got more complicated because the next week, even though they didn't have a tournament, uh, the, the guys got kind of used to wearing their baseball caps to church. And so they came the next Sunday and they wore them again. And then a few more started to do it, and it started to become a pattern week after week. And, you know, as people are in the church, some people began to grumble about this behavior, and there was kind of tension growing in the church, so much so that it filtered up to the elders, and the elders went to the pastor and said, you got to do something about this. And the pastor was like, I don't really want to deal with this. Went back and forth on the issue, but could see it was a problem. And so he went to the boys and he said, hey, you know, guys, you just stop wearing the hats during church. And the boys said, yeah, that's fine. And they, they were fine with it. It looked like it was all done. But then one of the parents found out what the pastor did, and it all kind of blew up. And the parents became, well, the boys got really mad about it, and about 15% of the church left <laughs> over baseball caps, you know, in the church. That kind of stuff happens all the time in the church. We have these divisions that come up about kind of almost what you would call silly type of issues. Something happens, a decision is made, someone's feelings gets hurt, right? And people leave the church. And many times those divisions are about non-substantive matters like baseball caps, but sometimes they're about really big deals, about important issues that come up in the life of the congregation or a denomination that puts stress on our community, our unity. Sometimes we find ourselves in divisions. And the question that comes up is, what do we do when we find ourselves in a time of division? How does Christ want us to live, to conduct ourselves? How should we treat one another when we're divided in some type of situation? And that's a particularly relevant and an appropriate question for us to be asking, particularly for us here in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, because we're in one of those times of division in our history. So this morning, I want to explore those questions of how we are to conduct ourselves in times of division by soliciting some help from the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul had to answer those very questions for those congregations there in Rome to whom he was writing. So let's see what we can learn from Paul. And our outline this morning is really simple. I want to look at Paul's problem. What was the baseball cap issue? Like, what was the, the, the area of division? What was the problem? What was Paul's problem? Because it was his problem. He was pastor, basically. And what was his plan for dealing with that? How did he go about handling it. What was his advice about how to conduct ourselves? So we'll look at Paul's problem and we'll look at Paul's plan. Two points in the outline. Let's start with the problem. What was the problem in the Roman churches? Well, if you're paying attention this morning as I was reading that, you probably gathered some of what it was about because Paul lays it out. Here is where he unfolds for us the nature of the division in these churches, and it was two-pronged. There's two elements to this. The first element revolved around food. 
You see that in verse 2 right away. Verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Well, what was that about? It might seem at first to us in a modern context, well, you had vegetarians and non-vegetarians, right? That was the problem. No, that wasn't the problem that was going on in the church. You had a group of people, uh, mainly, primarily, predominantly, overwhelmingly Jewish who were Jewish Christians who had a long legacy and tradition, thousands of years of eating what we would call today kosher meals, right? They didn't want to eat meat that was inappropriately handled. They didn't want to eat meat that was offered to idols. And so they were in this Gentile setting in Rome. And when you know food was served, they weren't sure how that meat was handled. And so what's the safest thing for them to do? Be vegetarians, right? Eat only vegetables because I don't know how that meat was handled. And so they had this issue of conscience about the origins of the meat and how it was handled. And so they refrained from eating it. And then on the other side, you had this overwhelming, predominant uh, Gentile group who didn't have those type of scruples. They felt they could eat anything. They didn't care whether it was offered to an idol or if it was kosher. They were loading up at the Texas Longhorn, right? They were, they were at the buffet and they were happy and they wanted to eat everything. And there was certainly a little bit of looking down their noses at the others. And so one of the problems causing division here in the church was over food, scruples regarding food. The other prong, the second prong, was related to feasts or festivals. You see this in Romans 14, verse 5. One person, Paul says, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. And here again, we have basically a Jewish-Gentile breakdown. Those among the Jewish Christian segment had two kind of scruples here. One was they wanted to continue to recognize and uphold the feasts of the Old Testament, the festivals of the Old Testament, which was part of their tradition, which had a long heritage. And, and then they also had concerns about participating in Gentile celebrations, Roman celebrations, cultural celebrations, right? The things that happened, holidays of the Romans, because they didn't want to participate in them. So they had kind of a two-pronged problem with festivals. And the Gentile Christians largely didn't have any problem. They could, they could recognize a Jewish festival or not. They didn't feel compelled to do that. And they felt just fine embracing certain cultural aspects of Roman society. And again, there was this bit of judging going on between the two groups regarding that. So you had these differences. And that was the core of the division, food and festivals. Now, when we look at that 2,000 years later, it can seem like, well, what's the big deal? It seems like a small type of issue, unimportant to us. We're not fighting over those things, right? And in theology, sometimes these are referred to as matters indifferent. Indifferent. There's a fancy word, it's a Greek word. It's used for a theological way of speaking of these things, adiaphora. It's a way of referring to these matters that are indifferent. I don't like that type. I think it's misleading. I agree with D.A. Carson on that. These matters 
were not indifferent in the sense that they were unimportant, right? When you say something's indifferent, like it doesn't matter, it's just a stupid little squabble. This wasn't stupid and it wasn't a little squabble. It may have been indifferent in the sense that it wasn't about salvation, but it was not indifferent in the sense that it was unimportant. You got to think a little bit about this. This was a very important, divisive issue in the body of Christ. And it had a theological import. It wasn't baseball caps. It mattered to these people. It divided them fiercely. That, you know, when you think about certain things that affect your conscience, like I, I believe in pedo baptism, infant baptism, right? At this point of my life, my children are grown. I could go to a Baptist church and be there with my wife and never have a problem with their position on baptism. I disagree with it theologically. I think it's an important issue. It's a confessional issue, and I affirm it, and I, I care about it, but it's not going to be in my face anymore because, you know, if they refuse to baptize my children, I'm not planning on having it anymore. <laughs> Believe me. Right, so sometimes you have these matters of conscience that are not in your face all the time, or rarely kind of thing, right? But this one was in their face all the time. Think about it. Every time there was a meal, and you know about the early church, and the house churches, and the love feasts, and the common meal that was shared. They were eating together all the time. They were breaking bread. This was happening at least weekly. And then the festivals, right? The calendar, this was coming up. This was in people's faces. It was not something you could say, well, that only comes up once in a while, so it's not a real big deal. This was a big deal. It was important, and it divided the church, and it was so important that two factions developed in the church. Two strong factions. I shouldn't use the word strong because one of them is called strong. People took sides, and they got embedded into those positions. And those two factions had names. There was the strong faction, which were basically those who felt they can eat anything and they can celebrate or not celebrate any day. They had liberty of conscience and they wanted that to be respected by all. They felt free in Christ and everybody should be free in Christ. And then there was the weak faction. And the weak faction were those with scruples about the food, about the festivals, and they thought it was a moral issue. It was important to their conscience. And they wanted to be respected. And probably a lot of them thought that the Gentiles were being loosey-goosey with their faith, right? They were liberals in that sense. They both thought they were right. And that's Paul's problem, right? That's a problem. You've got a division in the church over an important issue that's in everybody's face nearly weekly in the life of the church. Paul's got a pastor's problem. And if we look at that problem, and believe me, I've looked at this problem. I, you know, sometimes when you, when you think about preaching, it's always not really wise for a male pastor to use giving birth metaphors. You know, it's always a dangerous thing as one who has not had that experience. But you know, some, uh, a lot of ministers talk about sermon preparation as giving birth every week. And that, you know, sometimes you're in labor for short periods of time. It comes easy. Sometimes you're in labor for a long time. Well, I labored long over this text. It's a hard text. And as I studied it and studied it more, it became very apparent to me that it wasn't just an issue of this factional divide, this important issue. It went even a layer deeper that made it even more complex. 
And that relates to these titles that are used for these factions, the strong and the weak, those labels. And what do you think of when you, read, when you hear those labels? Strong, weak. When you hear those terms, they're kind of loaded, aren't they? What, what group would you want to be in just naturally? Anybody for the weak? You know, it's kind of a bad name for, for something, right? It's, 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 it's interesting, right? These, these labels that are given there, most of us would want to be strong. Who wants to be considered weak? There's like a loaded sense of judgment in those two labels, strong and weak. And so then you think about where did they come from? Who created these labels? And some people say, well, these are Paul's labels. That's possible. I can't deny that that's possible. Although Paul uses them very sparingly. If you study the text, he uses them very sparingly. I think the exegetical argument is stronger. I shouldn't use that word, but uh, it's stronger that where those labels came from was the majority. And the majority in the church were, guess what? The strong. So it's very possible that Paul, and I think likely, that these labels, strong and weak, that Paul is using, he's using them because they're already extant in the congregation. This is how, this is how things got labeled in this division by the majority. Paul's using that term. He uses it sparingly, but it represents the power of the majority to label something. So those who felt freedom, the strong, gave this label. Hey, we're the strong, they're the weak. And so part of this problem wasn't just a division. It wasn't just factionalism. It was that there was a majority who had the power of coercion. They could dominate the other party because they were in the majority. And they had so much power, they had the power of naming. And think about how effective that is, naming. It is power. It changes the debate, right? We see this all the time in our political debates. If I call someone who is pro-choice a murderer, well, that kind of is a loaded term, isn't it? That kind of changes the whole framework of the debate and the divide and deepens it. If you call someone who is not affirming of gay marriage in the church a homophobe, or if you have someone who questions you know, how we are handling issues of gender dysphoria, a transphobe, well, that changes the debate, right? That power of labeling. And that's what we do in all of our debates. Vilify the other side, put the worst label on them, and then we can win an argument. And so in some sense, Paul is dealing with a form of that here. The strong had the power. There was an imbalance of power. And if you have the outline I prepared this morning, I, I, I put on there, the translation of Romans 15.1 in the common English version of the Bible. I'll read it to you, don't worry. And it's interesting, if you study the text in the original language, Paul uses different words at different times for strong and weak. They're all translated the same in our English Bibles as strong and weak, but Paul uses different words. And in Romans 15.1, he uses the words dunatos and adunatos. Powerful, no power. Translated strong and weak in our Bibles. But the common English Bible translation translates it this way, verse, chapter 15, verse 1. We, note what Paul does there, we, he puts himself in the majority with the strong. We who are powerful, 
strong in the NIV and other translations. We who are powerful need to be patient with the weaknesses of those who don't have power, that's the weak, and not please ourselves. This is about power. It's about division, food and festivals. It's about factions, but it's also about power. And so Paul has a big problem on his hand. He's got a deep, important divide. He's got factions that are entrenched and are labeling one another. And there's a power imbalance in the church. Welcome to the pastorate, Paul. This is the real stuff of life. And the question is, what are you going to do about it, Paul? you got a big problem. This is a big enchilada out there, right? This is a problem in these churches. It's going to tear them apart. So what do you do about it? What's Paul's plan? That's point number two. Let's look at it. What is Paul going to do about this? And I have to tell you, as I labored over this text, the thing that struck me most is what Paul doesn't do about it. It's kind of a fascinating thing. We already know Paul has put himself with the majority. He's with the so-called strong, right? We who are strong, me included, with the I'm with you majority. Smart place for the pastor to be, by the way, (laughs) with the majority. He's there. And the easiest thing to do would be to come down hard on this issue, to adjudicate it, to rule in favor of the majority and say that, hey, Minority, you weak people, get over it. There's liberty in Christ. This is the new covenant. The old is gone. The new has come. You need to get rid of your scruples. We're moving on as a church. And what's remarkable is that Paul does say that in other contexts, doesn't he? He says, let me read Galatians. Paul is out there about liberty of the gospel, and you know it's, it's a heavy and strong divide. But here Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't make a de- definitive determination. He doesn't say, you're wrong and you're right, even though we can believe that Paul believed the strong were right because he's part of it. He has a conviction himself. But that's not Paul's plan. Scott McKnight uh, summarizes it well when he says, Paul does not expect everyone to be on the same page. If the weak want to avoid pork, that's fine with Paul. If the strong want to eat pork offered to idols, that's fine too. If there's anything distinct about Paul's lived theology, it's right here. He may be strong, and he may think Torah's observance is not necessary even for Jews who believe in Jesus, but he does not demand that all Christians have the same lived theology when it comes to Torah observance which means what he is against is demanding uniformity on this issue. That's true. Paul does not demand uniformity to have unity at this moment. That doesn't mean that Paul wasn't concerned about resolving this or dealing with it or he was sweeping it under the rug or he thought it wasn't important. It's just that his first advice was not to put a hard-line rule, shut up and destroy the minority in favor of the majority, which he was a part. It was a very different choice. He chose to focus on conduct, on how we're to live, how we're to treat one another in the midst of division. That's the focus of the text. That's the focus of Paul. And what Paul does is he gives three directives. Here's your application. It's right from Paul, right from the text. This is Paul's plan. What are you to do when you're living in the middle of a church division? 
at least in the way that you conduct yourselves with one another. Paul says three things. The first is to avoid judging one another. You see it there in the text, verses 10 through 13. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Paul says the first thing you need to do and how you conduct yourself in the midst of a division is to stop judging one another. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean, well, we shouldn't debate the issues, we shouldn't judge right from wrong? Well, of course not. The church has to do that. The elders, the leadership, the church, we have to debate issues, even those that are hard. Paul is not saying don't judge things right or wrong, don't debate things. What he's saying is don't judge the person on the other side as if you're God, condemning them to damnation because they don't agree with you, right? He's saying that type of judgment. Don't put yourself in God's place regarding the state of their soul. We all have one judge. We all will stand before that one judge, and only that one judge has the ability to determine who's in, who's out, who's his, who's not. It's a call to humility. Don't judge one another. Avoid judging one another. The second piece of advice he gives to us is to stop harming or to avoid harming one another. He has this great little play on words, Paul, and he repeats it numerous times here. He says, stop judging one another. Instead, judge not to, determine not to, decide not to, adjudicate not to harm your brother or sister by making them fall, putting a stumbling block before them. He repeats that in numerous places, verse 13, verse 15, verses 19 through 21. It's all about don't destroy one another. And what's he talking about? Again, he's not talking about, well, be so nice that you never say anything that triggers somebody or is against their viewpoint or you know, hide it all, don't talk about difficult things. He's not saying that. What he is saying is don't rub their face in it. Don't by your voice, your words, or your conduct harm somebody for whom Christ died. Luther expressed it this way. And this is what he commented on those verses. He said, today everyone regards only what is his and what he may do according to his right. He's writing the 16th century, applies here. But he does not consider what he owes to others and what edifies both himself and his neighbor. What Luther is saying is when it comes to these issues, think about the other person. Don't let them fall into a ditch. Don't let them fall over. Don't put a stumbling block in their way just to win an argument. Avoid judging one another in that kind of eternal sense. Avoid harming one another in that real, practical, live-together experience. Be kind to one another. And then finally and thirdly, he gives the directive. And it's not so much a directive. It's really kind of where to place the burden for these first two items. And what he does is he places a greater burden on those possessing the power. That's his third directive. It's to the majority. He says to them, the burden rests primarily with you, the strong. Why is that? It's because they have the power to force the other side to conform, to crush them because they have the power. And so Paul says to them, Romans 14.1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. 
Who's he talking to? Except the one whose faith is weak. He's not talking to the weak. He's talking to the strong. The burden is on you. The same thing in verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Who are, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, the powers with you, the responsibilities with you. It's greater because you got the power to crush the other side. So the three things, don't judge one another, don't harm one another, and the greater burden, burden for ensuring those first two rules are followed falls disproportionately on those in the majority, those holding the power. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that tremendously enlightening and refreshing. That Paul starts there, and I think that can help us and guide us today in our own church and our own denominations with our own divisions. So uh, right now our synod is meeting. Our synod is our national representative body of our church that decides important issues. And we're meeting this week. It's already started. Uh, real work will get started uh, tomorrow throughout the week. And this is the agenda for synod. It's a pretty good book. You can read it in your leisure. 650 pages or so. It's kind of riveting. It starts out slow. But I think it's but in that, there's these things called overtures. Overtures are things where churches, classes, people write to synod and say, I want you to do something about this. An overture. In this year's agenda, there are 74 overtures. That's a lot. They take up they begin at 351, page 351. So it's, you know, 300 pages of this is overtures from church. Why? Because we got a problem. We have division. And it's over primarily. Most of those overtures are about the issue of human sexuality. So with our division, our issue for our church this day, our denomination, what, how does Romans 14 apply? Well, let me take just a couple of moments and to think about that. How does Romans 14 help us with our problem? Well, I think you get there by looking at what's different and what's similar about the situations in Romans 14 and ours. What's different? The issue is obviously different. The issue we have is different than the one that they had. Paul uses that term, disputable matters. Is what we're dealing with a disputable matter? Well, it's being disputed a lot. But I agree with Don Carson who said just because it is disputed doesn't make it a disputable matter, right? I mean, people disputed the Trinity and the nature of Christ. That's not enough. I don't think what we're dealing with is a matter indifferent in our church. So where does it fit in? Doug Moo is right when he says we cannot extend the tolerance Paul demands here to all issues in the church. There are certain issues where we can't say, oh, just live together, happy little family. I mean, if the gospel's not being preached in the church, that's a big problem. you got to go. If the Trinity is being denied, the two natures of Christ is being denied, if the Apostles' Creed, you know, those things are being denied, you got a problem. It's a first-order issue. But how do you analyze it after that? I'm still wrestling with that. I have a whole different sermon. This is called Part 1, this sermon series here. Don't worry, there's no Part 2. <laughs> I'm just going to do a really long sermon this morning. <laughs> it's a little bit longer. Hang in there. The... Uh, I got rid of part two because in there I tried to analyze it, run it through all these filters, and what I found was that it was neither homiletically pleasing or all that enlightening. 
but I hate giving up a sermon. I work so hard. <laughs> I, was like, I was like done for next week, but um, I am going to publish it in the Church Life newsletter because uh, I do think there's something helpful in it, but it's probably more suitable for that context. But the issue, let me just say that the issue is different. I don't think it fits exactly in the context of Romans 14. But what's similar? Well, what's similar is we have a division over an important issue. We can at least say that. We have factions. We have two factions, maybe four. Who knows? I don't know. There's all these different groups growing up in our denomination, which kind of uh, disturbs me. Different labels being put on things, right? So we got division. We have factions, just like there was in Romans. We have a distraction and a sucking away of our energy from the gospel, right? We're being, we're losing our fellowship and our focus on ministry. We have a majority and a minority, right? The majority in our church is, to, we would, I hate using labels because they're all charged, traditional and affirming, right? These are the two differences. The traditionals have the majority. There's a minority. And that's true in our congregation as well as in the denomination. And we have a pastor like Paul who's in the majority like me. I'm in the majority. There's lots of similarities. And so I think these principles apply as far as how we are to conduct ourselves. We are to avoid judging one another or condemning one another, labeling one another. We are to avoid harming one another, unnecessary triggering, treating really personal issues as, you know, with this kind of callousness for some people. This is so personal, so difficult, so hard for them. It's not a theological issue for them. It's a personal issue for them. Don't make them fall. Don't throw a stumbling block before them. And finally, the greatest burden rests with the majority. To be responsible for that, and that's me, right? So, on me. Ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this ends. I don't know if we can stay together. I don't know if we can keep the minority. But I know we should try. Because that's what Paul tells us to do, to try. To try really hard. Let me tell you a story about my big toe. Because it goes to this whole point. So I uh, had this shoulder problem. You know, my shoulder was bothering me. And um, so in my garage, I put up these kind of like, you know, those hooks you hang bicycles on, those little kind of little fish hook kind of things, you know. So I put that, I screwed that into one of the, uh, you know, two by eights or whatever is in my garage there. And uh, I was using this bungee cord, you know. So I would click it on the hook and I would do this to exercise my shoulder. And I was making great progress on my shoulder getting better. It was really working. And I was going at that thing, working on it over the summer, month after month. And then one day, this is a true story, <laughs> I got that bungee cord. So you got a giant rubber band, basically. I'm doing that exercise, and that thing breaks loose. And I shot that sucker right into my own big toe. I shot myself in the foot. That thing was traveling at a high rate of speed. <laughs> It was a lot of pain. I got up, I went to church the next day, and <laughs> I, I taught Sunday school and preached, and uh, it's like, this thing really hurts. Uh, so I went Monday morning to the urgent care, and like, you got a problem. You busted that sucker. You did some real damage there. And, uh, and so I went to see the orthopedist, all that kind of stuff, right? And, and there was this window there in time where I thought, 
could lose this sucker. It was bad. You know, I probably exaggerated that more in my mind. My wife would probably tell me. <laughs> but, you know, the doctor's kind of like, you know, oh, you know, this is what, you know, you got, you know. And you're watching that thing, right? You don't want to, you know, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, okay, well, it's my big toe, right? How important is that? I mean, maybe I can't wear open-toe shoes anymore, but, you know, this is like the worst possible thing, right? It's like it's not that big of a deal. People can't see it most of the time. Will it really bother me? Not that important. Small part of my body. And then you start thinking about what it does and how it impacts your gait and how you walk and how that might have all these other unintended consequences about it on your hip and your knee and everything over time. And, you know, I'm starting to think, well, it's kind of better off to keep that sucker. It is, after all, Seinfeld told, told us, the captain of the toes. <laughs> Sometimes that second toe grows a little taller, tries to do a coup de toe, you know, that kind of thing. But I knew it was better off to keep it than to not have it. Like, I, I'm better off with that big toe, and I figured the big toe is better off with me because I know what's going to happen to it if it gets cut off. And that goes a little bit to what we're dealing with. We need each other. I would argue that the minority needs the majority. I would argue that the majority needs the minority. There's these things that happen. When you separate, you get siloed. You begin to kind of, you know, it's like drinking scotch without water kind of idea, right? Things get more concentrated, and sometimes that doesn't go well for either group. We need each other. Paul says it that very way. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What's he saying? We need each other. So what do we do? Well, for me, I'm going to try to follow Paul's words in verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort. It may fail. But let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And I'll hear the words, I'll heed the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, who put it this way Each member of the community is given his particular place in a Christian community. Everything depends on whether each individual is an indispensable link in the chain, unbreakable. Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. So may God give us strength to live in the midst of this division the way Paul calls us to live here, the way Jesus calls us to live. May God grant us the grace and power to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge it gives to us. We thank you for the call that it gives to us this morning. To try to work out our differences and divisions with respect and love for one another, not skirting the issues, not, not talking about the problems, but doing so in a way that is mutually edifying, that strives for unity and peace, that avoids harm and judgment of one another in ways that we are not empowered to judge. We ask you to help us to do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.